0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. Listener supported WNYC Studios.
1: Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab. Adventures on the Edge of What We Think We Know. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
0: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and the New Yorker.
2: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Staff writer Kela Fasane covers a lot of subjects for us. He writes about politics and sports, and music—a lot of music. Recently, he met up with a legendary figure in hip hop, the frontman and MC of Public Enemy, Chuck D.
1: So I, I met Chuck D for the first time at this bar called the Ivy Lounge in Manhattan. Um, it was empty. It was during the day. They had cleared it out for us, and. You know, I think I was expecting a slightly more stern person than the guy who walked in.
3: Hi, how you doing? I'm Kay. Hey Kay, how you doing? Good, Good to, to see you again. I've seen you somewhere. you see
1: me? Yeah, maybe, yeah. I'm so excited to sit down with you. I you. Like a lot of people, I saw the Fight the Power video from 1989, directed by Spike Lee. You know, Chuck D and Flavor Flav and the other members of Public Enemy leading a march through Brooklyn. So Chuck D was 26 when the first Public Enemy album comes out, and almost from the beginning he seemed like an elder statesman. He seemed like a big brother, and he has this new documentary called *Fight the Power: How Hip Hop Changed the World*. You know, it's all about the the connections between hip hop and the world around it, the culture around it, the politics around it.
3: The ingenuity of DJ Cool Herc was the spark that ignited this beautiful art form called hip-hop. When I listen to Public Enemy
1: now, I hear it as protest music in a double sense. I hear it as protest music against, you know, the state of the world, but also that there's an internal protest, a sense that Public Enemy is protesting what's going on with hip-hop. But one thing that I noticed when I watched the documentary, and even more when I talked to him he seemed to be more focused on potential. What he mainly sees is the hope of all the things that hip-hop might yet still become. Do you remember when you first got a sense in New York City that something's happening, something new is happening, these kids are doing some sort of new music, this thing called hip-hop is bubbling?
3: Yeah, of course, the technical aspect. I thought, like, why they need two turntables? In case one breaks down? But when I heard it, it's like, okay, you got mixers. What the hell's a mixer? I know uh. what a cake mixer is. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I, I, like anybody else, was naive. And this person also on the microphones, is doing a little bit like the presenters do on AM radios, playing black music, WBLS on the FM dial. Before that, WWRL played all the black music in the city mm-hmm. and the surrounding metropolitan area. And it was a small 1600 bandwidth station at the end of the dial. And they'd be like Gary Bird, sixteen hundred on the WWRL dial. Come on, this is LTD, and he'd be like, "Wow, man!" You know what I'm saying?
4: <laughs> 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 from WWRL New
3: York, Progressive AM in the apple. and I'm Gary Bird from the GB
4: Experience. Gary
3: Bird was a person that I grew up with twice. Growing up with him playing music on WWRL mm-hmm. later on. Gary Bird hooks up with Stevie Wonder. They end up being friends. Stevie Wonder produces a song for Gary Bird called The Crown, Mm. where Gary Bird is actually like a 16-minute dropping bars about our brilliance as as human beings and as black folk. Well, Stevie Wonder does that, and it's a Motown rap record in 1982. Mm. Never gets talked about. So we'll talk about it right here.
4: People of the world, wherever you be Welcome to Cosmic University Where life is the journey and love is the trip And the study of Pam will make you here I'm professor of the rap and when I speak I guarantee that my lines will not be weak They say our mind is a terrible thing to waste That's why I'm here and on
3: the case At that particular time, you know, hip-hop was emulating all this with the great voices, yeah. playing great music Going from the ones and twos being able to, you know, bring that noise to the people. So I came up in all of that.
1: It's a four-part hip-hop documentary on PBS, Fight the Power, How Hip-Hop Changed the World. Why is that important for you for that to be your focus, how hip-hop changed the world?
3: Most important word in that is world. Hmm. I've been to 116 countries over 38 years, so I see the changes And have people come to me with different languages, although I can't interpret not one other than the king's English, unfortunately, (laughs) which is my biggest regret. But people have made their way to say, Chuck, this is what this art form has meant to me in all continents, except for Antarctica and parts of the Arctic.
1: There's a quote from you in the documentary. You say, the pioneers in the beginning, they could have easily rapped about the real things that's right in front of them guns, drugs infiltrating New York City in 78, 79. And they said, you know what? There's no way that's going to be popular. We want to keep the party going.
3: Yeah. Not that they wanted to commodify it into something that's going to just quickly, just like it's got to be popular so I could get money. Yeah, they wanted to make money to get up out of there. Right. But I think it was one of those things. It's like, okay, everybody knows them damn stories. What's our escape route? We right. want to have escapism. We want to take this spaceship up out of here. Beam me up, Scotty, fast. <laughs> did you feel like you wanted
1: to join this hip hop movement that was happening, or did you feel like you wanted to redirect this hip hop movement? That was I wanted
3: happening? to curate, present, navigate, teach, and lead the hip hop art as making it something that people will revere just like Grant Wood. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I was educated in the arts ever since I was a little kid. My mother started Roosevelt Community Theater in 1973 in Roosevelt. I was under Frank Frazier's tutelage as an art teacher in 1972 in Roosevelt. I go to Adelphi University to become a commercial artist. But as what? I had no idea. Mm. I definitely wasn't going to go into architecture. And I I wanted to become a renderer. And the music led me to the point, even if I got kicked out my first year at the freshman year at Delphi, I actually got back in because all of a sudden hip-hop records came out. And I said, wow, I could be in the music business as a hip-hop illustrator, art department, Mm. album jackets, advertising. Wow, okay. And that got me through the rest of Adelphi where I graduated Dean's List in 1984. So hip-hop as an idea got me through college. Elvis was a hero to move. Elvis was a hero to me, straight out racist, the sucker was simple and hyped for some amp. Most of my Simple, look at for four hundred years. If you check, don't worry, the was a number one Damn, if I said you could slap me right here.
1: I think a lot of people nowadays might not realize just how radical Public Enemy was when you came out.
3: Why would I count them? (laughs) If they don't realize it, it's like...
1: But I don't just mean radical compared to America. I mean radical compared to what else was happening in hip-hop at that moment.
3: You have to take a long survey of what was happening in hip-hop to make a comparison. Right. It's not an art form that could be really easily thrown to you in four-part series and you get it all. So, if we were able to repeat the context of Public Enemy, How could you talk about being in the middle of a decade where communities are destroyed by R&B? It's Reagan and Bush, COINTELPRO, crack and guns, you know what I'm saying, drugs and guns. Um, At that time, when we started out, Nelson Mandela was in prison in South Africa. Margaret Thatcher was running the U.K. And Gorbachev's Soviet Union was teetering on the brink of disaster politically worldwide and this was trickling down to like damn can we actually be humans too public enemy was kind of like okay i'm making records i am the voice of in the middle of this but at the same time i'm bringing a community with me Hmm. and that was my role to actually lead a whole community even a community that's juxtaposed and not getting along with each other right you know being able to be that voice of um Maybe some reason I got a letter from the government the other day I opened and read it It said they were suckers they wanted me for their army or whatever. Pricher me giving I said never. Here is a land that never gave a damn. See number one rap was able to use more words yeah in a shorter distance of time. yeah singing I mean i I'm bad on lyrics. I still don't know what the hell a lot of songs are saying right. I can't make out the lyrics. And nobody seemed to ever say that, yeah, well, you know, everything else in popular music is unintelligible because they happen to sing their words instead of speak their words. Well, hip-hop and rap happens to damn near speak their words.
1: Yeah. And there's like a justification thing that happens in hip-hop where there's this sense of, who were you? Who were you to be talking to me? And so rappers would say, this is who this I, who I am. am. Let me tell you who
3: I am. It's the first rejection of the slave name. Hmm. You know, it's like, you know, I can't call myself Malcolm X, but you know what, I'm Chuck D, that type of thing. You know what I'm saying? I'm KRS 1, you know, I'm not Chris Parker. Right. And the rejection of the slave name was really the socio-political thing that, that white folks in America, when you tell them that, they like, I didn't even know that. I didn't even think of it that way. Hmm. Well, number one, you didn't have to, but if you want to understand the page of where we're coming from, being called somebody else... Is number one on our brains or something that we're trying to change. Hmm. And when I call myself something else, you find difficulty in it. In
1: 1997, in your book, you wrote, right now, rap is being used in a way that's negative to the existence of black people. Yeah. Why did you feel that way?
3: Because the curators were failing and it was dropping the ball, explaining what it could do and actually put things in the right context in place. Hmm. I'm 37 at the time. And I saw people say, well, we could grab the lowest hanging fruit and just to get the eyeballs in order for me to make a living with it. I'm like, damn, all right? Hmm. So to me, I have a firm belief. is like spectacle gets you interested and gets you in the building. It don't keep you there. Hmm. Spectacular keeps you there. Matter of fact, spectacular keeps you coming back for more. Mm. The rock guys understand that. I was with Prophets of Rage four years. Every night we got to stand an ovation and and rock hard as hell. I'm not saying it never happened in the rap world. It's just that it's been groomed differently. Mm. You know, I mean in the rock world, man, people come back and back and back and back. The promoters take it seriously. Mm -hmm. The black thing, the promoters always felt yeah, if we could get a lot of money for it, we don't know how long it's going to last. And we'll we'll take this headache money, and if it burns out, burns out. It's disposable, cool, we'll get the next one to replace it. Uh, I think that's been a disservice to the art form, and I said that in, at 37 years old in 1997, and clearly we've seen.
1: But it's also, if you go back and when I think about the mid to late 90s, I think of that as another golden age for hip-hop. I think of that as the Jay- Golden
3: corporate age.
1: But I think of that as the Jay-Z era, the Missy Elliott era, the Outkast era. You're
3: giving me, you're giving, well, with the exception of Outkast, you're giving me a whole bunch of individuals. Mm-hmm. Around the turn of the 90s, the record companies and corporations felt they could reduce the culture's elements down to one, which mm-hmm. is the MCing mm-hmm. on... A record. Mm-hmm. So you removed the other elements. DJ and that was removed. Um, the dance element was removed. Art element was removed. You got MCing. Okay, they make a records. The biggest change is when they seen that the downsizing from collectives into solo acts is what probably was the biggest change. And because that wasn't handled or managed correctly, mm-hmm. hip-hop became a whole bunch of soloists. Hmm. In the 90s, because it was easier to renegotiate with one person than a group. <laughs> Therefore, if you name your best groups out of 2,000, you name it individuals. You name your best groups out of the 80s, you name it groups. Right. Destroy a collective.
1: But part of that, I think, is because rapping is so powerful. I mean, when I okay. think about Public Enemy, there's so much going on. But I think about you and your voice and Flavor Flav's voice and these incredible tracks so of the well, stuff yeah that okay you that's
3: a, yes you sitting home and thinking but if you saw us performing which is performance is always the extension of art anyway hmm. you ain't just seeing me stand on a mic and, and and fucking spitting bars <laughs> so i think this documentary raises hmm. the bar over the bars hmm. it, hip-hop is all the panoramic elements and, and, and motion you know, you got sight, style, sound, and story. Mm. Those things, when they circulate, that's what you have something that people say, I'll come back to year, for years and years. One MC spin bars over beats, man. It's like, it, that's when it comes down to a point where anybody could do it. Mm. You got it right in the studio, you practice that. You know, the studio's gonna make it right before it leaves, and they go out to perform it. And I'm like, well, they gotta go through a rites of passage just because they're a star without proving it. Mm. And the first thing I look for is they're going to run out of breath. They're not going to be able to do what they recorded. Number (laughs) three, all right, they're on a tour. They're going to lose their voice after the first three days because they're trying too hard. And then you'd be like, ah. In the rock world, you rehearse, and your first night, you better get it right, and you better not have any mishaps on the whole thing. To to go back to the question
1: that's kind of implied in the documentary about how hip-hop changed the world, how did hip-hop change the world? And did it change the world for the better?
3: Well, for the last 30 years, hip hop has been in Africa and they've surpassed uh, the natural skill set that we're accustomed to in the United States of America. But that's always the case. (laughs) If you pay attention to Africa, you know, the whole key is to make yourself feel better or superior is like all you got to do is pay Africa no mind. Like it don't exist. Mm. Like, you know what? It might have started over there, but we're not acknowledging it until it starts in the United States. And that's just, that's derogatory to the black diaspora. Hmm. You cannot separate the black diaspora from black creativity in the future. So I've seen hip hop change the world many times over in places that's not just reduced to people under the construct of dark skin. I mean, and Yugoslavia and ourselves and Ice-T saw a war stopped as we're doing a concert there in the ice arena. And they stopped the war for one day in a Yugoslavian you know, conflict between Croatia and Serbia and Montenegro and Slovenia. Next day, they tell public enemy Ice-T, all right, it's time for y'all to raise up out of here because we're going to war tomorrow. Sure enough, we left over the borderline, boom, bombing over here. Wow. So hip hop has changed the world because they would look at fight the power and six in the morning as far as anti-authoritative, you know, conversation and applied it to their life, their language, their, their, their whole situation. So, yeah, we got another guide map based on black people in the United States, music and vibe to actually apply it to ourselves and our movement.
1: But isn't it interesting how things have flipped, how hip-hop used to be so divisive and polarizing? Some people loved it. Some people hated it. Radio stations would say, we play all the hits and no rap. And now here we are, and you're talking about the divisions in America. And sometimes it seems like hip-hop is one of the only things that just about everyone seems to like.
3: i say like evolution. How can you not study evolution? I mean, it's like revolution starts out. Evolution, what it evolves into? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Curtis Blow is revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Jay Z is evolution. He's an evolution, the the culmination of all these things that led up to him doing the great things that he does. Yeah. Will there be evolution after Jay Z? Sure, there will be. Is this thing going to be called hip hop, or does it get termed into something else? Probably. You know, we had jazz before everything was jazz. Right. And that's what we
1: expect is that things are going to change and mm -hmm. the era is not going to last forever. Mm -hmm. So how has the hip hop era managed to last for half a century?
3: 50 years is not long in real life. 50 years long in cultural life. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Very
3: long. But in real life, it's like, yeah.
1: But do do you think 50 years
3: from now, two people might
1: be sitting in a rooftop bar in a hotel talking about... How did hip hop manage to
3: last a hundred years? Shit, you better be whole 50 years from now, people will be sitting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. Let's go ten years at a time. Okay. I'd like to take 10 more years of people understanding that they gotta take care of the next generations, teach them, take care of the planet. Mm. And I think hip hop will always gonna It's going to be there. It's going to ride regardless. I don't think hip hop's the thing that you ask to be around. We want to ask for human beings to be around. We want to ask for the way of life, peace, love, sharing to be around.
4: Fight the power. Fight the power. Fight the power.
2: Chuck D of Public Enemy. He's a creator along with his producing partner Lori Bulla of Fight the Power, How Hip Hop Changed the World. It's a documentary series now on PBS. And you can find Kelefasane's writing on hip-hop and a wide range of other musical subjects and more at NewYorker.com. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Stick around. Oh
0: Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com.
1: I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. They are one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute has been making one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, what we do here changes lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere.
2: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. The list of movies and TV shows adapted from video games is really long, and it's kind of checkered. For every Tomb Raider, we have dozens of forgettable shows and would-be blockbusters that just weren't. But now there's The Last of Us, the HBO show based on a series of games set in a post-apocalyptic world. The Last of Us has been years in the making, and it's turned out to be a huge success both critically and commercially.
4: I know what's out there. We were going with an entire squadron for that very reason. But now I don't have a truck, I don't have a squadron, FedRA's five minutes away. What I do have is you. And I know what you're both capable of. For better or worse.
2: I talked to Alex Barish, who's an editor at The New Yorker, to understand why adapting video games has been so difficult over the years and what makes it work when it does work. Alex wrote about The Last of Us in December. Alex, I think you know me well enough to know after all all this time spent working together, that what I know about video games, you could fit in a thimble. I, I, <laughs> My kids will never forgive me. They're grown now, but I outlawed them at home. They remind me of this all the time, and maybe I made a mistake. But you love them, and more to the point, you're telling us that video games are now kind of, it's a long process, but have been influencing all other kinds of arts, particularly, obviously, television and movies. So... What I'd love for you to do for us today is give us three instances where video games have been adapted to great effect and, and,
4: and real effect on the, and popular culture. So let's go to it. I think we do have to begin with Super Mario Brothers, which I would not call a great adaptation, but it is an instructive <laughs> one in its, uh, its impact and its reception. Nobody in Hollywood had tried the live-action feature-length you know, video game adaptation as a form. And frankly, the game did not give them a lot to work with in the way of plot. They're brothers. They're
2: plumbers. They're on the trail of a kidnapped princess and a mystical meteorite it's incredible. that gives anyone who possesses it the
3: power
4: So when they came to adapt it, there was a degree of self-consciousness, a kind of desire to say, this is something more than the game. Uh, The tagline, in fact, was, this ain't no game. And they were aiming for a kind of (laughs) Ghostbusters-y, subversive comedy mode, slightly darker, slightly zanier, and uh, they missed. But unless I'm wrong, Super Mario Bros.
2: was a, a console game. It comes out in 1993 as a film, and lo and behold, in 2023... Somebody's taking another crack at it.
4: Oh yes, Uh, we are trying again with Chris Pratt in the title role. It's me, Mario. And I think this (laughs) speaks to Hollywood's quest. You know, they've not given up. It was a box office bomb at the time, but nobody has given up on cracking this formula.
2: Now we come next to something that dominated my household when when my kids were really young, Pokemon. (laughs)
4: This is the one that is nearest and dearest to my heart, I will say, in terms of the adaptation's past. And it had this really interesting, sort of unusual, mutualistic relationship between the games and the series. The series, I should say, had 1,200 episodes, 25 seasons, it's still going strong. And every time a new game came out... They would take the protagonist of the show, who is this sort of perennial 10-year-old called Ash Ketchum, and plop him into the new region. So he meets all the same monsters as you meet in the game. He's meeting the same characters. He's fighting the fights that that you as a player would undertake. And that sort of feedback loop has continued for decades now. It was actually recently announced that Ash would be stepping down as the protagonist after some 25 years. So there was a real outpouring of nostalgia and uh, Excitement about that, and, and is Ash retiring to Boca Raton. Uh, we can only hope after uh-huh. after the service that he's put <laughs> in.
2: You did it, buddy. You did it! Now, not long ago, you came into an editorial meeting. I don't know, a few months ago, and said that HBO is going to make a huge hit show out of a game called The Last of Us. Am I right? Yes. And I. Greeted this idea with a raised eyebrow, but said, "Alex, you go ahead and do it." The video game turned small screen sensation had HBO's
0: second biggest debut of the last 13 years, behind only House of the Dragon.
4: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. The the premise of the show and of the game is is quite simple: a fungus based pandemic has decimated society, and. There's a smuggler called Joel, who is played in the show by Pedro Pascal, who lost his daughter at the beginning of the outbreak some 20 years prior. And he is thrown together with this young girl called Ellie, who it's understood may be immune to the the pathogen and thus could sort of save what remains of society. So they have this kind of road trip across America. He is taking her to a lab where they hope that they will be able to engineer a cure. Joel, I can handle it myself. It's called luck,
2: and it is gonna run out. You hear that? Run! There's
4: too so many of them. That sounds like every post-apocalyptic story under the sun, but it's really about sort of the the ways of living that people have coved out for themselves in this landscape. You know, there are some people who are building these kind of idealistic socialist communes. There are people who've barricaded themselves into their own towns and won't let anyone else in. There are people who've turned to incredible violence. There are, you know, all of these different uh, modes of existence. And you're sort of seeing all of this unfold through the deepening relationship, this kind of father-daughter dynamic between the two of them. So, Alex, Super Mario Brothers, Pokemon, and The
2: Last of Us, is this all about... Hollywood's search for intellectual property that will become the next Marvel or something like a, a, a franchise
4: that will just float the boat financially? I mean, I think that's certainly a factor. You know, Amazon, Paramount, Netflix, basically every studio and streamer under the sun is trying to do some version of this. And there have been a lot of false stuts. You know, um, Assassin's Creed with Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard was sort of believed to be uh, the, the next great hope of video game adaptations back in 2016, I think it was. And that just crashed and burned and plans for sequels were promptly scrapped. So, you know, there has been... Some some attempt over the decades to, to get something like this off the ground. But I think that The Last of Us has the advantage of this inherently cinematic quality and of a team that genuinely believes in what they're doing. So it's not this kind of cynical cash grab alone, you know. Is it possible to predict what other games will become the television and movies of the near future? I mean, there are a million that are currently in development. You know, Amazon just announced a God of War series. Netflix are trying about a dozen different things right now and seeing what sticks. I mean, I think the thing to look for, and I hope that they know this now, is, you know, strongly defined characters and a a strong narrative backbone, something that a lot of these adaptations have historically lacked because, you know, when you're playing a game, you want to be able to project onto the character. You kind of get to fill in the gaps or even customize the way that they look and the way they act. And when that comes to television... And they're just an empty cipher. It's not very interesting to watch because you have no reason to care about them. So I think if people are careful in their selection of source material, then they will have much more success in that arena.
2: Alex, thanks so much. Great to talk to you as always. Yeah, thank you. Alex Barish is an editor at The New Yorker, and you can find his reporting piece about The Last of Us at newyorker.com. I'm David Remnick. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with The New Yorker Radio Hour next week, and we hope you'll join us.
1: The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Toonyards. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Brita Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Ngofen and in Putabuele. With guidance from Emily Botine and assistance from Harrison Keithline, Mike Kutchman, and Meher Bhatia. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund.
0: This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.